Hi, and welcome to the Deep End Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Lasku, and I'm here to share the stories of coaches who are in the deep end, wayfinding through their learning journeys to support the development of others. In today's episode, our very first one, we connect with Liam Murphy, a curious and reflective coach turned pracademic to explore many rabbit holes, or as I refer to them, the green pipes from Mario-themed video games, including how theories and frameworks have shaped our development as coaches and what coaching looks like for us. Oh, welcome to the first episode of The Deep End. Oh, that's really exciting to say, actually. I didn't think it'd be this exciting when I started it. Um, Do you want to introduce yourself first and then I can explain the context as to how we know each other? Yeah, so Liam Murphy, I am a football coach and analyst, football analyst. Um, Currently, I work at Brisbane Strikers Football Club and also Brisbane Raw Football Club as the women's first team analyst. So that's that's my coaching side. I've um, just finished uh, my university thesis in uh, sports coaching as well. So best of both worlds, bit of an academic background and um, and the coaching side. So I think you, people in academia call it pracademic or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> You're using my words against me. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the word pracademic, to be fair. I'd like to think that um, we could never be full academics because we spend so much time actually putting into practice what we do. So, yeah, I, I would describe you as a pracademic as well, actually, now that you have your master's. You're almost three quarters of the way to academia. Me. I've got enough knowledge behind me. I've read enough journal articles <laughs> to to call myself one. Do you reckon there's a threshold, like once you reach like 400 articles saved to your computer, you immediately just become not just a coach anymore? Because I feel like that was the point, that's the turning point for me. That's it, yeah. I don't, I certainly haven't um, read 400, so... No, yeah, but I've saved yeah, 400. <laughs> I haven't read them all, but they're existing in my reading list. Like. Somewhere out there. oh and yeah I guess like full disclosure like we have been having conversations like this for a long time so it's kind of cool to have them recorded but um I can I can barely remember the context in which you first messaged me but how I describe it is like you saw what ecological dynamics was that was kind of the entry point into your thesis and then kind of crashed into me as one of the few people who can talk about this as a coach and then as an academic would that be a fair assessment of our relationship yeah that's how how it all started there um i was midway through my master's there and um I kept hearing your name name on a few podcasts and saw saw your work coming up in the ecological dynamics space. So I thought thought I'd chuck you a message on LinkedIn, and we I had the um, benefit of already knowing you from Nudgy. Yeah, yeah. Nudgy. My my first year of coaching, um, I had the pleasure of working on, within the same coaching team as Alex Lasky. <laughs> 
realise that your claim to fame is it. You know me before academia did, so like that counts for something. <laughs> you could probably just hear me from the other side of you know the fifteen oval, like that Nudgy has, just yelling at the five E's to be like, "Why don't you want to be here?" <laughs> flights are looking pretty good at the moment, actually. Are they really? Oh, <laughs> I do not miss those flights into. at all. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Okay, so in terms of coaching, um, obviously, actually, something I wanted to talk about was that masters. But firstly, like, why coaching? What got you into coaching in the first place? Well, I started started off as most uh, most kids do um, in football is playing football as well, and I grew up wanting to be a professional athlete and watching YouTube videos, trying to emulate what. Um, well, Ronzinho, Ronaldo, Messi, all, all those those guys um, could do on the field. And you, I just grew, grew a love for the sport. And then I quickly realised when I was in grade 12 that uh, there was no chance I was going to make it as a professional footballer. So thought to myself, what's the next best thing? What keeps me involved? And coaching coaching was that next step. So I said, yeah, um, I picked up picked up coaching in when I was in year twelve, so sixteen, seventeen, mm. and that was alongside alongside a bloke called Jake Goodship, who's um, who we were coaching the five Bs, yeah, and ever, ever since then um, grew throughout my career in in football. So started off with Nudgy there for two two seasons. As well as coaching cricket, mm. as well because I um I played cricket, um, for a little bit, and then that got me into club football, um, at Brisbane City Football Club, and then through through university I met a um, a bloke by the name of David Silva who got me into the Queensland Academy Sports um program who was also tied in with Brisbane Rule, so we did their their girls program as mm. well. Um, so I help I helped Dave Dave it out and then that's got me my first little bit of exposure to women's first team football um, with Mel Andretta and watched how how she coached uh, through through the winter season of twenty nineteen I believe mm-hmm. and got to shadow her a little bit and then then I got, went to Brisbane Brisbane Strikers with um, with a couple of the crew from Brisbane Raw there, and I am still from 2019 onwards still at Brisbane Strikers. How much of that experience with the um, I guess the first level women's team then trickles back down into how you approach community football as well? Like, is it a, an easy step between the two, or are they completely different worlds? There, there are some transferabilities within that. I guess coaching is all about relationships. Um, mm. So being a, being able to connect with people is definitely something that you, you need to do in multiple different contexts to be able to be an effective coach. Mm-hmm. Um, how how you coach um, might would would change differently. How how you would to, from the five E's, five B's compared to the first first team uh, women's environment. So there there are definitely some some differences within that and how, how I would approach it. But 
I guess the main the main thing is trying not to be someone who who you're not. Like mm. we, I've I've got my coaching idols. Like everyone likes um, to watch Pep Guardiola's teams, um, Mikel Arteta at the moment, um, and just the energy and passion they bring. But again, there's no use of me trying to be be that be like them because um, that's not authentic to who, who I am. You've got got to bring your own spell on things. And if you don't, players see right through that. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine someone like Arteta coaching like a 5 E's? <laughs> oh. how ineffective that would be. But even still, like the approach that he takes, I think is really interesting. Like you, in knowing you, I actually watched one of their um, like what was it, an Amazon Prime like documentary yeah. about them? I can't believe I sat through the whole thing voluntarily. And um, I remember thinking like, oh, wow, a lot of this stuff is kind of like what I do, but also like very, very different. Um, and I was a big fan until like the cups and the cupboard thing, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, and even then, like I'm sure it works in that context, but he's probably had to compromise who he is slightly as well to fit in there and to connect with the people that are constantly coming in. And one of the things I've never understood about like that level of football is like how much you have to have a consistent image, but the message sort of behind closed doors would change depending on who you're dealing with. And like even just knowing like what to say, what to do, how to act in certain circumstances, like no one really teaches you that as a coach. No, it all comes from experience and you make a, make a lot of mistakes along the way and jot it, jot it down, down for next time. But I think, again, back coming back to authenticity, if mm-hmm. you come in with the right intentions, play, players can acknowledge that. Um, and if you're humble enough to say, yeah, maybe, maybe I got this one wrong, but um, in the moment I'll back, back my decision 100%. Um, if you can apply that sort of thought process, to your own coaching journey, then I guess it's players, players can respect that. Mm, I've always found it hard. Like I've always wanted to connect with the people that I'm coaching. Um, and in particular, I use quite a heavy exploratory or discovery style in that I ask a lot of questions and expect people to kind of explore for themselves. And it took me way too long to realize that not everyone likes that. Like it's quite confronting for people. Again, when I was coaching the five E's, I actually wrote an entire blog post about how every coach ever should coach a team like that because it's very eye-opening about your approach. And uh, the amount of times that are like just shut up, miss. Honestly, like, just give us the answer. Like, stop asking me questions. My teachers ask me questions all day. I don't need questions from you too. I'm like, it's six o'clock in the goddamn morning. Who was asking you questions already? I should be the first person. (laughs) They're not going to hold back and tell you. No way. Especially at that level, but also how much like the, if you gave them space and genuinely understood them, you realize that they're only in the ease because they're kind of mucking around or they don't really care or they're kind of in it for the fun. And they think that because they're in that team, they're really bad at what they're playing. So in this context, it was football, but like they genuinely believe that like I'm in the ease, I'm useless. And I was so headstrong about being like, no, you're not. Like that is so not fair to do, like to put on yourself. So like how do we balance, I guess, like connecting with the people in front of us, but also knowing that like as coaches, we have our own approach to things too. Yeah, that, that's it. And it's funny how your perception of being in a lower grade team changes 
over time. Like, it, mm. like you said, if you're in the five five Bs, you think, oh, I'm I'm an average average player sort of thing. But by the time you get into year t- year twelve, the, the boys had had a um, filth, filthy fifths. <laughs> Uh, nickname for themselves and it's just an absolute muck about and you're having the best time with the boys <laughs> you really lean into it after a while like it's more yeah. fun <laughs> yeah. the lower level lower level football changes over time and how ha- and how ever everyone sort of interacts with that with that concept so it's all it almost becomes like a a thing people want to do i don't want them been the second second eleven, they take it too seriously. Let's let's jump, <laughs> play with the boys in the fifths. I've had some crazy stories about like how ridiculously bad like the lower volleyball teams are and stuff because they like don't even train. They just go for a, a piss take and then they get to the game and realize that they can't serve and they're like, oh okay, we can't even play the game if I can't even get the ball over the net. Maybe we should have done some sort of training. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. It's it's funny how your perception changes over time, and I I wonder if it does work like that in clubland versus in a school context. As in, like you're you know that you're not in the top team, so you approach yeah. the entire sport very differently. Yeah, hundred percent. So, what do we do then for? Because I think a lot of club sport when you have people who come from like different school backgrounds, even just different backgrounds culturally and it at all, how do we then create an environment that caters for all of those very, very different people and then get them working in a, you know, arbitrarily designed team for the weekend? Good, good question. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I guess the one thing I did like about school sport is the amount of sampling that's involved in it mm. so one one term we could be playing football the next next volleyball uh cricket in this in the summer you had athletics in term four and there was just a whole variety of sports which you could you could have the availability to play yeah um, whereas club club sport now yeah <laughs> i know it's M- mpl here we're in from february all the way till November, so it doesn't really give too much time for other other sports. Do you think that affects the players? Like, I can definitely tell the types of players in a sport like cricket, where you benefit, I guess, from diverse movements. You can learn how to adjust your body in different contexts, and you can kind of bring that back to cricket. Can you tell the kids who have like played other sports versus are just like football only all time? Yeah, sometimes sometimes you can um, definitely. They're, the one professional example I, I like to give is um, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who's who's a black belt in Taekwondo or um, one of those combat sports. But and he, the level of athleticism, um, the types of volleys that he he can score, um, getting his leg right up right up above his head, um, he's he's a bit coming on to retirement age now, so I don't know if he can still do it. But um, the, the goal against Golans he scored for Sweden is just an example of that. It's him being able to get up where some some people would typically head, head of the ball, mm. um, but co- coming from his background in, um, in jiu-jitsu um, or taekwondo, he, 
that's that's his go-to response. That's his go-to solution um, for that moment. So there there are definitely examples and crossovers where I'm sure in cricket you would have seen players um, who are good at cricket often play golf as golf as well mm-hmm. and drive drive the ball 300 yards, but uh, can't can't really putt putt for dough. Do you know I had to learn how to putt left-handed <laughs> because I would like hit the ball so hard and we had to come up with these like metaphors to encourage me to just like gently hit the ball right like I don't have to just whack the living daylights out of it and the metaphor that we settled on was like you had to pretend like you were patting a dog's head like with the underside of <laughs> the club because I would just be like <laughs> all of the time like, I could not gently hit this ball in any context even if I was pretending to like pat a dog with it it was insane and yeah I always contribute that back to like well our first movement in cricket is kind of this way so I could never get rid of like all of that momentum to just gently touch something and let it run for itself it's like I had to be the one who put the power in it to make the ball go even yeah. if just touching it was all you needed Kill if you me. think about the movements in cricket if you want to attack, attack a ball it's a very I guess explosive movement with your with mm. your arms as well so you have to generate generate that power uh, to be able to push the ball so trying to ta- I guess tap a ball two two three meters um, I don't know if, if uh, cricket help, helps with that too much. I actually think it ruined my golf career. Um, but even then, like there are definitely sports that transfer better than others. I remember working with volleyball recently. I was talking to a couple of the people who were like injured on the sidelines and I was there to observe the coaches, not the athletes. And they asked me about my background in sports and I'd always try to hide the fact that I was not from their sport because a lot of people don't respond well if you're from a different sport. Um, And when I asked them about whether or not they'd always been in volleyball or if they'd kind of sampled quite a few sports leading up to it, um, a lot of them had started quite late in like school sport and then got picked up into pathways and were eventually, you know, at the AIS where I'd met them. And um, a lot of them had a background in dance or ballet and they kind of stopped and were like, I didn't know you did dance. How come you were, like, how long did you do ballet for? And they're like, why are we all here playing volleyball if we all have, like, a background in dance? And I'm just giggling on the sideline because I know the reason they're good at volleyball is because they can tell where their body is in space. And if you can be a ballet dancer, if you can be any kind of dancer, you can actually manipulate your body really precisely and really well. So the second that your hand goes above your head and you can't see it, you know exactly where it is. You just, you can tell, you know, so some people can't tell that and they're like, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> what do you mean? Nobody knows when their arm is above there. I could tell you exactly where it is. I'm like, I know there are some people in this world who can't. I, I don't know those people. I was a bowler. <laughs> That's it. And it's, it's a lot of, I know for football, a lot of invasion sports have concepts that can you can transfer across to. Like mm. football is very similar to hockey, um, as it is in basketball as well. So I know Guardiola um, attributes some of his coaching philosophy to basketball, uh, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of a lot of one v one scenarios in basketball, mm. um, and just ha- how to mark a player versus how to mark space is different as yeah. well. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting. And this is what I've become aware of in the last couple, couple of years is trying to apply concepts from different sports into, into football. 
um, which tip, which can often help broaden my perception of what I see then on the field. So what does that process look like? Is it just a matter of kind of like watching other sports or listening to interviews with other coaches and then going back to your own training environment and trying things out? Or is it much like slower process than that? Like over time you start to notice different things. Yeah, no, it's trial and error. <laughs> really. it, I, I watch a whole, whole lot of different sports there. Um, bas- basketball for the example as well. And then um, try and sort of bring those concepts to life in, in football. So like I said, with basketball, there's a lot of one, 1v1 sort of activities, um, 1v1 sort of moments within that sport. So how can we then bring that to life in, in football um, mm. and having the opposite of attack, you have the defensive side of things as well. So how can we, how can we prom- promote working together as a defensive unit versus how can we e- then differentiate our defensive strategy with 1v, 1v1 marking. So it's, it's, it's a trial and error process. And the thing I'm lucky with at Strikers is we've got some pretty good mentors around. Daryl Cash, the technical director there. The number of times I've, I've often floated ideas off him and we sort of spitballed um, concepts and how we could bring those to life tried it yeah this this worked uh this wasn't as great maybe we can tweak tweak this next time um and that's the really the journey of coaching trial trial and error knowing what works and then at at the end of it you get a plethora of drills or ideas or coaching cues that you use which bring about certain behaviors Mm. and then it's that becomes almost like you go to really yeah, so it's less about like deploying things and seeing how they go or like storing them up in like this, you know, playbook that you then, you know, select and just apply every time that you go to training. Um, it almost becomes like this relationship of understanding like what is needed now or what is missing and, and how can I manipulate things to to create the opportunity to make that happen. Um, yeah. I did want to ask about the role of a technical director, um, something that I haven't really seen in other sports. Can you explain what that looks like and, and what they're kind of responsible for within a football club? Yeah, so the te- technical director, um, I can only really say um, what Cash's role there is mm-hmm. within strikers there a technical director could have a whole different range of responsibilities but um, at, at strikers really it's keeping an eye out on the football side of things as well making making sure that um, we do as coaches what we say we do um, we've we've got our game our game model that um, Nacho Ferrer brought in from Real Madrid a couple of years ago. And then it's just about making sure how we can bring that to life. Um, as a technical director, that's probably, that's the football side's a minute uh, sort of aspect of your overall role. You've got um, the organization side of things, you've got uh, parental engagement as well. And then you often got your own team, your coaches, coach to go on top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not just like a responsibility of you as a coach. It's almost like you're you're keeping an eye on what the coaches are doing and at the same time you're applying your practice too. Um, what did that game model look like? And I guess how much of that game model 
directly translate or maybe even dictates the way that you coach and the way that you play the game? Yeah, so our game model came to us in a textbook about that thick. (laughs) (laughs) And which I hadn't seen before, like going coming through, before I got to strikers, you go through the four four moments of the game. So the two transition moments in attack and defense, and then when teams have the ball and when your team doesn't have the ball, I got, got to strikers and that we've got 16 moments. They've broken it down into specifics like that. But the one thing we do want to mention, and this is what Nacho and Kashi emphasized, was that it's a starting point. This is This is what we want to accomplish this is a style of play that we want to accomplish mm. how we get there and the process we do that can look very different with within the club and within different teams sort of thing so we as coaches we're given a lot of freedom to i guess coordinate with each other to come up with different ideas of how to bring those concepts to life and that's done through again coaching cues and also specific training um practices like rondo's possession and there for each moment of the game there there can be a handful of drills which you can manipulate um to bring about that behavior so example being you can uh, playing out from the back session can also look like a high press session because you've also got a defensive side to consider as well so you don't really need to reinvent the wheel uh, as as far as far as trying to design new and fancy sessions it's really putting the players in the context with as much of the contextual information as you can and then guiding players through that process to find different solutions so why is that important? Because I know that a lot of the default approaches to coaching are almost the opposite of that, right? Like you take everything away because it's too hard. It's too complex. We don't want people to be pushed too far beyond their means. So we instead of playing something that even resembles the the kind of contextual information that you'd have in a football match, we do the exact opposite where we take it all away and maybe, you know, end up kicking a ball against a wall, for example, which was a, you know, a house fire and a half recently on the internet. So how, why do you know that that's what you need to be doing? I guess I can re- link it for myself. I can link it back to the research I did in, did in academia there. Uh, the concept that really came to mind was knowledge of versus knowledge about the environment. And as soon, as soon as I heard that it's more important to have knowledge of the environment, um, so knowing identifying certain, certain, I guess, um, important pieces of information, certain, highlighting certain affordances or opportunities for action. That's more important than trying to take a whole bunch of tactical knowledge, knowledge of the environment and the knowledge about the environment, sorry, and then putting it into a player's head. So that's, that's more important. So, and that's sort of when, I figured out how I then design sessions. This is different. So for it to be the most representative it can be, or to be the most, I guess, the most beneficial, it needs to have all the information that's available to the game. But 
having said that, I'm mindful that it can that can easily be taken as put put them in game, like chuck mm. chuck them in the eleven v eleven, uh, where where that is the game sort of thing. So, but often that's not really the I guess desired process because eleven v eleven is is very chaotic. So how can we then scale that back and but still keep the same affordances for the players and the same problems that they experience in the game. Yeah, so just to clarify some of that language as well for anyone listening, uh, we normally attribute knowledge about as like your information sources that you get from other people or like a, a description of what's happening rather than actually doing the thing. So your pictures, your instructions, your um, meetings where you go through plays on a whiteboard with <laughs> magnets, those are all knowledge about about and so when we talk about knowledge of it's like a direct experience of what's happening and you gather that knowledge by doing the thing um so that whatever you take from that as important is going to be different because we're all different people so um i feel like one of like if we take anything away from like the research that we've done more recently um i think that's probably one of the most important things for coaches because then you start to notice how many times you promote or maybe even prioritize knowledge about when really you could have just given the opportunity for them to experience it for themselves and and that might be even more meaningful to them moving forward yeah 100 and i remember as a coach coming through my first couple of years a lot of it is a bit was about giving the players the knowledge to make the decisions on the field. Mm. So we'd, we'd often speak speak long about the tactical stuff, um, but also at the same time being a young coach, that's a way to gain credibility in a way. If, you sound, if you sound like you know what you're talking about, um, players think he can bring, he can bring me along um, and improve my, my playing ability. Mm. But of, often enough and... I experienced this as a player. I, what's what the coach said and what I I saw in front of me was completely different. So is I almost got frustrated as a player when I heard heard a coach say "stop and stand still." Uh, <laughs> right, as this happens, can we do this, this, and this? Um, if we see if we see the defensive line step up, what should you? What's your role here? What's your role here? Like. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it was a long and frustrating process. And to be fair, though, in given moments, that like, type of intervention is still valid. Mm. It's it's still valid for the, um, I guess, the solution. If a player's not really understanding um, a, a solution um, or a problem, they that might be a valid method. So... Coaching, coaching is about a spectrum. It, knowing, knowing when to pull, when when to pull out the hammer versus when to pull out the spanner. <laughs> I like that. I, I again, like I think most of my coaching is born from a similar frustration. Now that I think about it, like there's always this one classical moment that I come back to, and I know a lot of like you know who we are, the stories that we tell ourselves. That I remember standing on the court. Uh, it was a semi-final, and we were losing badly. And you know when we play a sport like I did with indoor cricket, um, Australia does not lose at all. Like we go through tournaments undefeated, and I took it so personally that we were losing in the semi-final. 
final after being undefeated this entire competition. I remember like looking at my coach on the sideline, which is you know between a net. Like, what the hell do we do? Like, we didn't prepare for this. We didn't prepare for any scenario work other than like, you know, these are our game plans. You stick to them. And I have this vivid memory of her looking at me and just going, "Uh." (laughs) and I lost it. I was like, that is so not fair that we could get to this moment. And I am so thoroughly underprepared that I looked at my coach and even they have no idea what to do right now. And I was so pissed off. I turned around. I was like, no, that's it. Fine. I don't need you anyway. I'll do it myself you you're bowling and she took a hat trick or something and it was like that moment I was like okay well I never want to be that coach where I'm standing on the sideline and the player looks to me and goes what do I do because that means I failed as a coach I never want to be like that source of all knowledge you know when everything breaks down they look to me for help and so now I'm the exact opposite I'm usually nowhere to be found like I don't want them to be able to make eye contact with me because I want them to stand there and be like I've got this I can solve this problem even if I've never been here before. And that takes some very serious task design to make them feel like I can solve problems, but also I've seen this problem before. I'm going to come up with a solution either way. Maybe, maybe that uh, that coach's shrug, your coach's shrug there was intentional after all. <laughs> maybe it was. <laughs> but then it, my coach, my personal coaching philosophy, I want players to be adaptable and be able to solve of different situations on their own. So mm. the reflective practice I then look at is then asking myself, have I given players or teams opportunities to come together and solve problems themselves without relying on me? And that's that sort of rabbit hole is when, when I got into the gamification sort of research. Um, Amy, White, Amy Whitehead is... One of, the, one of the main papers that I heard, um, papers, one of the main ones I had a look at. And then that, because her way really promoted teams getting together to find different ways of solving situations. It gave the players ownership rather than the coach. Like my, my overall goal is to make myself as redundant as possible mm. so that the players can then fig- figure it out for themselves. Because like you said, I'm, the players are lying on the field. I'm I'm sitting on the sideline at the moment, but um, it's it's that coach coaching urge within you that wants to get get up and tell them what the solution is or where where to look. But do we give ourselves the um, the time to just sit back and observe players trying to solve different situations and failing? How do they mm-hmm. respond? Do they come together and what sort of feedback do they give? to each other and if they don't well have I then provided the environment or the situation for them to do that yeah I can't remember who I was talking to recently but they mentioned around how easy it is to ruin a training session as a coach like especially when you start to see it like this you're like every time I open my mouth like am I making this worse because you're so hypercritical of like the information that you give and how that might like close people off or open people up to different sources of information to consider or how meaningful those sources might be um and uh one thing I picked up probably from one of the first like podcasts I ever listened to was like the three shut up rule this idea that like every time you want to intervene as a coach 
tell yourself to shut up first like and do it three times and chances are by the time you get past the third one either they're in dire straits and they need your support anyway because at some point I have not designed the right level of challenge for this particular task or they've worked it out for themselves and we can have a conversation about it instead of me trying to jump in and solve it for them. I think that yeah. instinct comes from care, right? Like you just, you care so much about the people in front of you that you want to help them. And then yeah. you have to remind yourself that like helping in this context is like not interrupting their opportunity to learn. If you've designed like a really carefully constructed training session. That's it. And for me, for me, my analyst background, I, I go I try to go into depth with t- tactics as well mm-hmm. I watch a lot of football and you pick up new things and then you your first instinct is oh that's that seems cool how, how can I then implement that into into training where I sometimes have to bite my tongue about <laughs> how much information I want to give give players yeah because like tactical um like plays and stuff like that I think football is probably one of the sports where you can really analyze that from a a reductionist view of like you can really look at the positions of the players and and how their structure contributes to a tactical play like but when you have people in front of you that's a little different right so like how do you go about actually teaching tactics to teams of people especially like teenagers where working together is it can be quite difficult sometimes oh uh, for our players we we do video sessions as as well as one one form of um, of learning, we know that the amount of information that they get um, isn't going to be the main, I guess, learn, learning tool for them. It's yeah. to supplement their learning. So we we do a lot of video which highlights their week, their games from the weekend, and then compare compare it to other other youth teams. Um, in I guess Europe because there's no point in the under 15s being compared to the professional team at Chelsea Football Club is mm. can, can we make it a bit more a little bit more re- relevant and say hey this is this is something that the team in Chelsea are doing in your age group this is what that this is what they look like um, this is and this is where we we are at at the moment. So highlighting those differences, but sometimes even showing them their favorite players, like for from an individual training perspective, if you're working, let's for, say for example as a striker, you're working uh, receiving back to goal and turning a defender, you can then show them a video of Lukaku, um, who who then explains how he does it, mm. and then analyzes that through a match situation. You can just see the kid's eyes light up. Oh, mm. oh I, I want to be like Lukaku, sort of thing. Yeah. And then let's let's go try that. So, video is a tool to use, but it's not the main tool mm-hmm. that that we use. It's there to supplement and sort of, I guess, almost almost inspire as well. So, how do you go from that moment where they're like, "Ooh, I want to try that," which someone else does? who is very unlike the person who has yep. now been inspired by them because you can't compare the average like 15-year-old to a professional footballer. 
<laughs> I mean, to them, they might not think it's that far a gap, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, to the average 15 year old nowadays, but so how do you then as a coach kind of try to bridge that gap between, okay, this is what someone else is capable of. Now they're inspired by that person. How do I encourage them to find a solution that maybe inspires them something similar or even just achieves the same outcome of like, you know, that moment of the game? You, so, you almost look back at the practice and you, you then do. Mm. Are you are you giving that kid opportunities to perform those type type of actions and solve solve situations in a similar way? So, from an individual training perspective, then is it is it much use of getting a pole and telling the striker to to receive the ball back to goal against the pole? Probably not. But maybe you can then dif- differentiate that individual training, um, make make it harder for them. So if if your striker is re- relatively s- small and wants a bit more of a challenge, maybe find a defender that's that's more physical and larger, so that they then have a different problem compared to a defender that's the same size. Mm. And from that, you'll see different solutions emerge, and you can then link that back to the video and say, "Hey, we we noticed that in that pregame talk, we noticed that." This is what Lukaku did, but based based off a similar situation, this is what you did as well, which is all, which is pretty cool. Instead mm. of holding and pinning the defender, you ended up pushing him away and trying and coming deeper to receive, which which is a different solution, and it worked for you. Yeah. So it's good to have that other tool in your belt. Yeah, I like that connection back to like look. What they do is pretty cool, but if you don't look like them, if you don't have the same experiences, like chances are you're going to come up with different solutions, right? And that's also good if it works for you. And if it doesn't, like that's a point of reflection, right? Is that the start of a a deeper conversation around, you know, like what what are you capable of right now, or what could you potentially do that suits you better? Yeah, exactly. And from that, those individual trainings, you then take that into into your game. Um, at the end of training or on the on the weekend, where you can then sit down with with that player and be like, "Hey, did you did you recognize this scenario where you received the ball? What what was your what was your solution? What did you find got you success most often? Or on the opposite side, what didn't work and why do you think it didn't work? So it's important to ask them the question of why do you think it didn't didn't work or why why do you think it did work? Because they then tell you what they saw and again that gives you more more information you can use to potentially take to training next week and um, use as a bit of a reflective practice with them yeah and I guess it's it could be you could be forgiven for thinking that you can't do this in team sports right um, but I have seen some of your training sessions so um, can you describe what that looks like, you know, when you are trying to have those like one-on-one conversations, but you're actually coaching, you know, 20 people at the same time? Yeah, we're, we're lucky that we've got, uh, we can have three, four coaches on at the same time when two teams combine. So like, for example, last night, we the under-15s trained with the under-16s. So right right there, you've got you've got about 20, 20 players you can have a 10, 10 v 10 game, but you'll have one coach that's leading the session and other coaches who 
work with individual units or individual players within within that task. So being being able to go go around and sort of work with players within whilst the game is going to a sort of extent. It's whether that's given individual challenges that's based on their individual learning plans um, or just something that they they want to improve they want to improve in. Um, so it's that's the thing that we at previous clubs we didn't have the resources to do. Mm. Um, have we didn't have assistant coaches where where we could go to individuals or and focus on them. It's you were worried about getting the team organised, making sure that they're doing the right thing, um, focusing on the macro structure of things mm-hmm. and the macro concepts. Um, the broader tactical details, but having having more coaches around you allows you to go into the micro detail of things with players in the moment. So that, that's that's a benefit that more more coaches allow affords affords you. But mm-hmm. again, how can you how can you do that when you're just a sing, single coach? So I often think, okay, if I if I didn't have all these coaches around to help out during a session, what would I do? Um, and challenge cards was one one thing that came came to mind as well. So, Tim, you I know you wanted to work on your left foot, um, your ability to switch with your left foot. How many times do you reckon you can do that within this game? Mm. So give give them individual challenges, and they they know pretty pretty quickly whether they they were up to up to task or not. Yeah, I love the idea of connecting it to things that are quite personalized because like setting a challenge for an entire team doesn't necessarily reflect everyone's phase of learning. Like you might be challenging some people, it might be too easy for others. It might not even be relevant to half the team because there are such position specific things that you could do in a sport like football. Um, I really love the idea um, that Russell Earnshaw often talks about around having someone on the sideline that is like subbed off, but then in like a, a coaching timeout box where you're responsible for like having a deeper conversation about what's happening over there. And instead of seeing that perspective of like the outside looking in as a bad thing, which we normally do as coaches, I can see the game very differently to other people. So I might not be helping them with the information I'm giving them. But if that player can utilize that information and start to pay attention to it themselves through a bit of poking and prodding and questioning, um, then they can use that information to their advantage when they get back on the field. So that's probably one of the um, the first times I've really seen that as a, a beneficial perspective to have rather than like something that holds my feedback back as a coach because I can't necessarily experience the game in the same way that everyone else does. So whatever I see isn't necessarily useful in that moment. Um, so yeah, I always love sharing that example with people and thinking like how could we potentially do that in other contexts? And it gives players own ownership of their own learning as well. Mm. Like they, I, I often hear, listen to the quote that players learn just as much of their teammates as they do the coach, if not more. Mm-hmm. So again, coming coming back to my own individual philosophy, uh, are we then providing the environment or the opportunities for teams to problem solve together and mm-hmm. demonstrate that leadership capability? Which will hold them in good stead for two, three, two, three years when they reach higher junior, senior level football. 
I also think it breeds like good people too. And it's a really healthy relationship to have with learning. Like how often have our experiences of sport maybe shut us off from asking other people for help? Or if we didn't necessarily get the support or help that we were hoping to from someone like an experienced other or a coach or a mentor, does that kind of taint that relationship with anybody? Like if I don't have a really good relationship with a coach, then I might stop looking to coaches for help and then take it upon myself to be like, oh, I'm going to learn this for myself because this person didn't help me in that context. Um, I think it's really important to have ownership over your learning so that when you do leave and you're an adult and there's not usually coaches who are there to help you every step of the way when you play social sport or whatever context um, that you still kind of keep wanting to get to that next phase like whatever that is as small or as big as that might be that's that's it and it's transferable over different different contexts too Mm. that's I guess the one quote that stands out out is from a coach player relationship is like I said said last night connect connect before you correct Mm. it's important for coaches to have that relationship with players a positive one where if you give them feedback they're not going to they're not going to take it to heart where they don't think you're being overly critical um you're giving feedback to them because you care for them Mm -hmm. You, you want them to learn you want them to grow as players um so it's important. It's really important that you connect with them before you come in with any sort of correction. Like if I if I went to a completely different club and a completely different team, coming coming in with all my knowledge and saying, "Yep, yeah, I want you to be doing this this better," um, kids kids going to see see that and say, "Who the, who the hell is this guy coming <laughs> all guns blazing?" I do think it's weird, right? Because like. You do have to spend a lot of time doing that. But at the same time, there are contexts where um, even if you do try to connect, like you spend that time asking questions or or seeming like you don't know everything. Some people misinterpret that too. They're like, well, this bike doesn't know anything because he keeps asking me for help instead of actually just telling me what to do. And it's a really fine line to walk. You almost feel like you're on a tightrope at all times to like, justify your position to be there as a coach but to do so in a non-authoritative way so that people don't see your word as gospel and then like rely on that when when a problem occurs or when they're trying to perform on the weekend i i always feel like i'm just like constantly on that tightrope and that's the perceived con of questioning is Mm. is that you're trying you're trying to find out more about what their experience is they're thinking hang on just give me the answer it's and i feel like it, it could be it's more like that in in a senior environment mm. as well so if if you're ask, asking players what do they think what um this team's pressing this way what can we what can we do here you're the coach you're meant to know <laughs> and that's again almost linked back with your experience as well being frustrated yeah. in indoor cricket in the semi-final you're the coach. You're meant to know. Like, <laughs> it's your game plan, mate. <laughs> yeah, this is what we go th- go to train trainings for, so you can tell tell us how to solve these situations. Mm, yeah, I think it's um, it's little moments like that where um, earlier on in my coaching, I would have like succumbed to the pressure of being like oh, okay, well, if they expect me to know the answer, then I'm just going to have to give them the answer. Even if I 
thoroughly believe that my answer is never going to be correct because, you know, I am a completely different person from a very different background. So, um, and I am not that player. So whatever I come up with, they're going to have to change for themselves anyway. They're going to have to scale it back to who they are. Um, and I try not to um, compromise myself to that level anymore and instead spend a lot more time explaining why I approach things in a particular way. And I found that when you um, do so genuinely, not to justify and say, oh, I do it this way because I think you're wrong, which I've definitely done in the past. Um, (laughs) All of this just comes from my own experiences. Um, If you actually do explain like, okay, well, I fundamentally believe that, you know, whatever I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have to reinterpret anyway. So I want to give you the space to do that for yourself. Then people start to think like, okay, well then, First of all, why has no one ever done that before? <laughs> and secondly, what the hell am I supposed to do with that now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I at some points you might might even need to compromise at the start to get a get a little bit of credibility, mm. like you to for a senior environment potentially. You might need to show that you've got some knowledge behind you. Um, you might need to potentially solve some problems early on for them so that they can see well you you do do know your stuff and then that gives you the foundation the platform to take take that step back and start start to work with the players then I think it's really hard to um, expect people to accept that straight away because in every other learning context, they're probably being told or showing the opposite. Like the amount of times I've been told, even in like high school, when you're supposed to put your hand up to ask a question, they'll be like, not yet. Oh my God. Like, how could you already have a question? So eventually you just stop asking. And then when you get to a context, which is super similar in terms of learning, where you have to wait until you are asked of to even give an answer in the first place if you then turn around and ask a question and expect an answer straight away they're like oh well well, just give me a second (laughs) I have to first like think about what the question was and then think of an answer and then compare it to like what I think you want to hear from me versus what is actually the answer sometimes depending on how well you trust that coach that yeah that's it and you again think of the school environment kids go can spend six hours six hours a day in that environment where mm. where they're being being told told what to do and then um ask questions of what they what what the answer is rather rather than what do you think about this what what could we do differently it's it's a different environment all altogether and all and corporately as well for old older players too mm. you come coming into a corporate system there are, I guess, a lot of companies uh, saying this. This is when you need to be here. Um, this and micromanage that process a little bit. I, I don't know. Potentially, that could be the case. Yeah, I've definitely been told in other contexts outside of sport that you can't just keep asking why. <laughs> most most workplaces are not conducive of just the, this constant toddler walking around, be like, "Why do we do this? Why do we do that? Why do we do it this way?" <laughs> Learned that the hard way that maybe you have to choose which questions you ask why about and like when to push back because not everyone appreciates your curiosity sometimes but that doesn't mean you shouldn't keep it (laughs) as it keep quiet and do what you're told yeah (laughs) i'm not i i do not work well in those environments oh my god i I need to know exactly (laughs) imagine how you respond people respond to that (laughs) 
Oh, at least now I'm not as headstrong about it. Like I am definitely willing to meet people where they're at a bit more because I've learned the hard way that being bullish about anything really isn't helpful. And so um, taking the time to genuinely understand the person in front of me is way more important than like the convictions of the way that I see the world. And if they don't meet, like if we don't see eye to eye, that's perfectly fine because now I've learned something that I wouldn't have before if I just closed myself off and thought, you're wrong. Like there were so many moments in the last couple of years where I've spent time with other coaches in particular, and I've seen something and gone, nope, (laughs) I would not do it that way. I would not do that. Like that looks so wrong in air quotes. Um, But then I stopped myself first before even like spending time on that thought and be like, wait a second, like, why did they think that that was useful right now in this moment in that particular way? And you'd be amazed how intentional and understanding coaches are, even if it looks quote unquote wrong, because they know the people who are in front of them. And we probably need to stop a little more often as, you know, skill acquisition specialists in my field, or even just like as other coaches watching coaches and thinking, I wonder why they did it that way. So stick to those why questions, people. Uh, as as coaches too, no one comes comes into a session wanting to intentionally make make the team worse. You, everyone, comes in life. everyone comes in with the best intentions of what they of what they think can improve a team, and mm. it just looks based off their experience. It looks differently than to another coach who's in a similar environment. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's very easy to forget that sometimes like while we do spend a lot of time even in my field like criticizing what training looks like, it's not done out of like a direct attack on the people who use those particular practices. It's more about like a um, a catalyst to be like, can we maybe be doing this better? Can we use our time more effectively? Um, and can we create better outcomes as human beings and not just like as you know performance athletes? Because what we're currently doing is definitely not working. Like we have the data and the experiences to suggest that. And yet we haven't really changed yet. So I'm curious, like as you've evolved in your coaching Um, At what point did you kind of look back and go, okay, this is, I'm on a good path. I'm happy with the direction I'm heading in now. I guess when I became a lot more stable in my coaching ability, when I had a theoretical framework to underpin what I I did Mm. Um, and having, having that experience going through my master's there, learning more about ecological dynamics gave me a real understanding that my experiences as a player can then inform what I do as a coach as well. Yeah. So it's it's good. It was good going through that where I, I then had a le- different lens, a different pair of glasses of which of how I viewed training and how, mm. how I viewed football. Um rather than looking at technical tactical details and trying to be reductionist in my thinking um look at it more behaviorally i guess or emer- emergent of uh different different constraints mm-hmm. which is funny because like if you can you imagine a <laughs> a version of yourself five years ago using words like that 
yeah. I'm just like picturing in my mind what younger Liam would have thought. Like, what's this bloke on about constraints, emergence, affordances? But I think once you get it, you can't undo it. Like, you yeah. just definitely see the world so differently that it makes so much sense to use words like that because that is the only accurate way to kind of describe what's happening and we can use different words we can make them sound easier but at the end of the day like I think it's really important to use the the complexity of that language to reflect on how like actually complex the world is like yes it sounds weird they're probably confronting to start with but then once you see it you can't unsee it I've got Stuart Armstrong's voice in, in my head when, as you as you just described that being I guess once once you see it one way, you, you can't unsee it. Mm. It's it becomes how you view how you view the world. But I guess the important thing is you don't come come in as a coach pre- preaching that this is this is the new way because you're going to get laughed laughed out how the field pretty quick. It's it's a way you see the world and it's how how you inform you your own coaching practice and how you how you review it it's um oh like i said if if um 20 my 26 year old limb came to 17 year old limb and said said those same same things you'd be like what what the hell you signed up to a cult or something (laughs) yeah what have you done what can i do in the next next 10 years to make sure i'm not like that (laughs) and that is why time travel is a paradox people but also i think one of the benefits of shows like the mandalorian has meant that we can't use this as the way without like ironically relating back to a tv show so if anything it makes it a little more difficult for us to be too high on our soapboxes um but even mine like i think about the turn like you know if we laugh about turning points um there are definitely moments in my coaching that I'm like super proud of and I come back to to be like I know that I'm doing the right thing here or this is a a path worth pursuing because I've seen what it can do for other people like um I (laughs) had an athlete where um she was (laughs) ironically the mirror of what I went through like she was stuck she was bowling wide she really didn't know what to do next And she turned around on the field and just kind of looked at me and I was lying on the grass hill at the time, just like (laughs) watching the clouds, like not even watching the game because I'm very much like aware of what that feeling is like of someone just watching your every move. So I do the opposite and you could almost feel her gaze on me and I looked up and like waved, just gave a thumbs up and then laid back down again and you could almost see the steam coming out of her ears. Uh, But then she reassessed the situation similar to what I did and, and kept moving. It was perfectly fine. Um, the only time I did step in was when like that anger and that sort of self-critical voice of like, oh, you know, I've done poorly in this over, like I've ruined the whole match and that just kind of kept going. Did I yell their name out <laughs> and just stood on the hill like this? Like, how dare you <laughs> be so hard on yourself? Um, and I think they like finished bowling, like threw their hat on the ground or something. And all you could hear from the hill was me going, oi, <laughs> none of that (laughs) and she just started laughing and it was just that moment broke that cycle of like okay well this is it like I have completely ruined this entire match and it was salvageable from there and I know we still talk about it um as like that was the one time that I did need to step in and I did and like previously I maybe not like I wouldn't have spoken up because I hate to be the person yelling from the sideline but I I just knew that I had to say something otherwise it was a downward spiral that's it. it. 
And it reminds you of what what does good coaching actually look like? Because mm. I can tell you, sitting sitting on the hill and what watching uh, players do their thing isn't uh, in any formal education course. But but again, it's what it's it potentially what they needed in that situation, like ha- giving them the ownership to work through that process and solve solve that situation like as coaches do we need to be able to put on a performance just to appease mm-hmm. others it's at some at some points you almost think that you you do need to like <laughs> even like i'm i'm not a like a go off the top of my rocket sort of coach i yeah, um, i'm not up and down on the sidelines or anything like that but for potential mo- for moments Maybe that's what a team does need, or mm. um, that external external bit of energy. So it's it's funny as I've gone along this coaching journey, recognizing maybe I do need to change change up different elements of myself to suit what players need in this particular moment. Like the in, the feedback I got from Nacho was that the boys boys are struggling, they're they're losing. By multiple goals in this game, um, they just, they need they need a pick me up, and they're not they're not going to put their hands up as twelve year olds and try and try and and um, and inspire their teammates because the game's lost. This this is when they they need you as the coach to be that external source of energy and try and lift them again. Yeah, and I think it um you'll never see it in those moments too. Like you never really get that direct feedback as to whether or not you were the right thing at the right time. Um and I think most people can't even like process that in the t- like in that moment and which is why we don't necessarily get feedback as coaches. It's not until you become either the bad story that you tell other people <laughs> or the good story that people reflect on. Cause like even one of my favorite ever coaching moments, um, even though I hated umpiring in cricket as part of like our coaching responsibilities and school sport, um, I find so many of those, I still remember so many of those interactions, like standing at square leg and the boys trying to like nudge me for information, be like, oh, what should we do next? Who should we bowl next? And I'm sitting there with like sunglasses on, trying not to laugh or smile or give any indication. Um, And they would talk to me on the way back. So even when I'm umpiring from behind the bowler's end, um, they'd say something as they walk back to try and get a response out of me. And I'm just sitting there trying to hold like a poker face, like don't say anything, don't do anything. Like I was really harsh in OVWs because I really didn't want to like gun some kid and ruin his day. So they'd sit there and like plead, like literally beg me as 17-year-old boys, be like, miss, come on, just trying to get something out of me. And I did not give any anything while we were on the field but off the field I would talk non-stop with them about the game and I remember standing in the last game I was at square leg it was um probably the last game of cricket for a lot of these kids so we wanted to give them like the best day ever and our captain scored 100 that day um and <laughs> earlier that morning one of the parents of the opposition were like oh which one's your kid? Like, how come you're here? And and where's the coach? And I went on the field so pissed off by that comment. Like, how dare you assume that I'm a mother instead of the coach of these kids? Also, I was 21 at the time. So <laughs> how old do you think I look? So I was already mad standing at square leg and he ran around 
all the way down to square leg, gave me a hug first and then ran back to the crease. I was like, that's why I coach. Like if I hadn't coached the way that I did, I don't know any other kid who would have like hugged their coach on the field because they'd finally achieved something that they may never get again and knew that we'd been working up to like that moment together. And so even though I knew that like I was performing in this like quiet, stoic, like don't give anything away umpire while I was out there, I knew it was worth it for that moment because I couldn't have made that happen. He had to be the one to do that. That's it. And, and those sort of moments as as a coach, you, like you said, make it make it all worthwhile. You think back, yeah, this is this is why I coach. And then when times are tough, you think, oh, think back to those sort of situations. You're like, yeah, that this is the reason why I coach. Like to be able to get get those little bits of gold at uh, at the end of the season when you know you made a big impact on a player not mm. not just performance wise but as a per- as a person you built built that relationship and to see them go- grow throughout a season and then um move move on it's it's a powerful thing mm. i mean there are definitely a lot of reasons to not come back to coaching every year and yet we do right it's the same like playing a sport like you have a really bad season you hate every moment of it you spend the entire season being like why am I doing this and cricket is renowned for this the only thing that binds cricketers together more than the absurdity of the game is the reasons why we keep coming back even though we hate it and um, to then like get to the end of the season and the start of the next season and you sign up without a problem or you you put your hand up again to volunteer and then it takes another month to be like god I did it again like why am I here <laughs> straight back into it situation <laughs> you realize you're choosing your poison over and over again and complaining why you're poisoned like <laughs> Yeah, but it's interesting get, getting the answers off coaches of why why they coach. Why mm. why do you coach? Do do you, you want to do you coach to win? Do you coach to make players better? Do you coach just because you love the sport? The range of, range of answers and is enormous, and it's interesting to hear those answers and then how that how your why, as uh, Simon Sinek would say, that mm. informs how you then coach. Yeah, I don't think we ask ourselves that enough. Or maybe like we get so sucked into a line of coaching or a methodology, if you want, um, of like what to do in these moments that you almost don't go back and check whether or not they match. And it's that dissonance that slowly eats away at you. Like if you do something that's so against why you're there, Um, You kind of feel that as like a separation, like you're splitting your identity almost into two separate parts of like what you want to be able to achieve and then what you're actually doing. And nobody really teaches you how to reconcile those things or even to assess it. Like, did you have any formal training on how to reflect on your role as a coach? Or is that just a process of asking yourself the questions that you ask your athletes? No, no formal training. Uh, the number of podcasts I've had to listen to throughout throughout uh, these last couple of years on on the rock, on the forty minutes journey to, down to Slacks Creek and back. <laughs> um, that's the one thing that came up of what good gold standard coaching practice looks like is having that reflection element. Mm. So have knowing what what you did well what you could have done better and how you could have done 
done that better. That's that's an important step for growth as as a coach. Like whether that whether whether that's be writing it down when you when you get home, mm-hmm. um, sit, sitting and thinking about it in the car is, isn't always the best way because as soon as you get out of the car, it's pro- it's forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think it it was the power of feedback. I think it was that paper where they said gold standard is either having video where you can record and analyze yourself mm-hmm. uh, or even if you've got a mentor, having someone to have a chat to, which is why I'm pretty fortunate. You're willing to pick up the phone at 8, 8 p.m. <laughs> on uh, Monday, Wednesday nights okay. after, after training so that we, we can then go go through training and what what I noticed, what I saw, what I was trying to achieve and maybe potential ways that we could have done that done that differently. Yeah, so I guess like we ended up in this almost like accidental mentoring dynamic where you just call after training and we discuss it and we call it something fancy like the drive home diaries because everything needs to have a name. Um, but I guess what is the the value of that compared to, you know, the same thought process that you would normally have on the drive home anyway? I guess it get the value is getting your thoughts out out of your head and on into the ether, <laughs> whether that be on paper, or <laughs> it's out there. But going going through that process helps um, helps you almost understand what you th- what was going through your head. And then mm-hmm. for myself, as I talk about these things with yourself, I almost get ideas in my head as as I go. Yeah. So it's it's two. It's a two way, two way sort of conversation. Like you, um, you're helping helping me, and then I I sometimes think, oh, hang on, maybe I should could have done could have done this as well. You probably count on one hand sometimes the amount of like questions I ask or things that I have to say because like you'll finish a sentence and be like, oh my god, and then like go completely in an opposite direction because something in that sentence just kind of set you off. And it's yeah. kind of funny to think like I did start out like writing things down about these like conversations, like topics to see whether or not they changed over time. But I kind of stopped doing that because it didn't matter anymore. Like I knew like whatever topic we started on would never be like the topic that we end on or like very rare rarely is it um, and we end up almost like I usually describe it as just like Mario world like we go down one drain pipe and we just end up 10 levels deep we forget what level one was in the first place and, and then the conversation just starts from there the next time and yeah. probably starts on a different level because you've seen something different you know by the Wednesday everything's completely changed we probably never talk about level 10 ever again <laughs> and we're off in a different direction <laughs> that's it we start off talking talking about whatever train, training drill we're doing and then at the end of the 30 40 minutes we're talking about married at first sight or no, how, we good, are not. how good the broncos are doing reluctantly on both topics up the dolphins <laughs> uh, it's but again it attests to the non-linear dynamics that emerge that <laughs> It's a, it is a non-linear process, as they say. It definitely is. And it, until you're deep in it, you don't really notice it. And I don't think you can ever really predict on how non-linear it's supposed to be. Um, 
and how many times you maybe stop yourself from like genuinely just following something because you were curious about it or because you randomly have a question that pops into your head. Like we, our development would look really different if we actually built systems to support thinking like that. And I think we just train ourselves out of it. And it's not until you step into your own space where you feel comfortable and supported that you can really go back to it. Like the amount of times I didn't know who to go to, to ask a question. And now ironically, I'm the one that people come to, or I ask them that question, like, who do you go to and why to kind of help them identify those structures that they've built almost by accident. Um, so that they do never feel like they're, you know, that's their only experience is alone in your car on the way home. Like it's never just you, I promise. Yeah, the amount of learning that coaches have, which is attested to formal education, is very minimal. It's I remember on the B on B license course there, we got shown a pie chart, and 80 percent of that pie chart um, represented the learning that you do out with with others at, and experience versus the 10 percent of formal education yeah yeah which look looking looking back on is is very true like mm-hmm. you pick up things from different different coaches different uh youtube videos and books as you, as you start out have like as a gen coach how do i build my knowledge bank you go to youtube and look at look up how how to play like barcelona Barcelona drills, uh, best Ajax passing drills, all that sort of jazz. And then through experience and trial and error and talking to other coaches, like mm-hmm. coaches are the best thieves, um, you build build up what works for you. Yeah, and I think there's such a, a – <laughs> all of this information is so publicly available that uh, you would never need to think critically about any of it. You could develop an entire like library worth of stuff from other people and then never adapt it, like just literally deliver it as is because there's so much available out there. You might not even know why you do it, just that somebody else does it um, and you can now do it too. And it's not till it breaks down or, you know, some kid turns around and goes, Oi, why are we doing this? Like, I don't want to have to do it this way. Be like, I actually don't know, mate. <laughs> I definitely I did not you. take this from a YouTube video that I saw. Oh no way! <laughs> I just stole, I just stole it off that coach over there. <laughs> the amount of times that's happened to me, someone's like, "I just saw her do it," so you know, I'm going to try it and see how it goes. And it's just like absolute chaos, and they think they're doing it wrong, and then they realize that my sessions are just absolute chaos most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Sweet. Well, I think that's a pretty pretty natural place to end this particular conversation so that we don't go on for, you know, multiple hours like we probably could. Which, could, which is very possible. <laughs> this is just the, the same average length of our drive home diary, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. The range, range of topics we cover. <laughs> the, the worst part is going to be coming up with a title for this episode, <laughs> if you've got oh, any ideas. That, that, that's all you. <laughs> You're the host. I have to do something, I guess. <laughs> I just come up on here and talk. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate you. I think it's a really important thing for other coaches to hear, like what it's actually like as well. And um, I hope this goes a, a little further in the way of making other people feel like um, being in the deep end is a good thing and probably something that we actually want to strive towards rather than to get out of straight away. That's it. And pretty, 
appreciate your role that you've played in my coach development too, um, being being there on on the long drive homes, um, and through my master's degree, really um, help help me out there, uh, bouncing ideas off, suggesting you different things, and uh, it's 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 um, yeah very helpful to me. So thank you. My pleasure. And I hope that other coaches hear this and, and find their own mentors to just have a conversation with. We don't do anything formal or structured in any way possible. <laughs> so this is definitely something you could start for yourself. And it doesn't have to be a podcast. I'm just finding an excuse to make it one. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the Deep End podcast. I hope this episode has left you with more questions than answers. Keep treading water in that deep end. We need coaches like you in this world.